So people, when they share something on social media, nine times out of 10, they haven't even read the thing. And I know I'm guilty of that sometimes, I'm sure. Well, I don't want to point fingers, but I am. I'm, <laughs> gonna say, I'm sure you are, James, but I don't want to speak to you. Know um, I wasn't always, but I've started using Buffer app quite a lot more and it makes some really nice suggestions. I'll scan the post if it looks kind of cool, I'll often share it, but you didn't hear exactly. that here. <laughs> Coming to you in your speakers from Dubai to all around the globe. This is James Reynolds Traffic Jam Podcast. Five, four, three, two, one. Welcome back, listener. This is Traffic Jam show number 45. And what a great show I've got lined up for you. Now, before I tell you a little bit about today's guest, I want to say hi to some Traffic Jam listeners who've been getting in on the discussion for episode 44. In no particular order, Denver Prophet Jr., Robert McGovern, Ian Tong, and Bravo's very own Freya Jones. Thank you for stopping by the episode page and commenting. To join the chat on this episode, head on over to trafficjamcast.com forward slash 45, where you can also get the extra bonuses I've put together to help you implement the strategies coming up on today's show. So at that appropriate juncture, let me introduce our guest today. His name is Brian Dean and he's got a great website called backlinko.com where he teaches very practical SEO advice you can use to get more search engine traffic. So you know this is a conversation that I'm going to be very excited about and you should be as well. And that's because Brian's one of these new breed of SEOs who get where SEO is going and he's able to deliver actionable results-driven tactics that work in the modern day of search, which is actually easier to say than it is to do sometimes. (laughs) And what he teaches really does work. My approach and Brian's approach are similar in many regards, but still, I've been able to learn a hell of a lot from Brian, and I know you will too, which is exactly why I've invited him on today's show. So without any further ado, here on Traffic Jam is Brian Dean from backlinko.com. So welcome back, listeners. This is episode 45, and joining us today in the hot seat is Brian Dean. Brian, how are you? I'm well. How's it going, James? It's doing doing good. Glad to have you on the show. Now, you, of course, have this website called Backlinko, so I reckon we should appropriately start the discussion talking about backlinks, perhaps, and how they affect search engine optimization. Now, despite all of the recent turmoil, I think any SEO will tell you that backlinks do still work, but what's the difference between a backlink that works for you and one that works against you? Well, there's a couple of things that go into a backlink that actually increases your rankings. Uh, there's kind of a third category of those that don't do anything. And then there's the ones that you mentioned that can hurt you. And basically, the difference is that the ones that you want are links from related sites that someone has put there. Uh, they're, they're usually called editorial links, which I think is a nice description of what they are. It's basically someone saw your site or saw a piece of content on your site and they said, hey, that's pretty cool. I want to link to that. And they either link to it from a blog post, an article, a news site, 
or a resource page. So if they have a page that links out to different resources, you end up there based on the fact that someone else said, that's cool. I want to link out to it. Um, that's very different than how it used to work when it was basically a spam fest. Yeah. And it was where you would just get links from anywhere. And basically a good rule of thumb is if, if your competition can easily just get the same link that you get, it's probably not a good link because it's going to be devalued uh, at some point. So any sort of mass link building, it can work short term. I'm not going to lie and say that it won't work at all, but it definitely puts you in the danger zone. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think some of those links that are most effective are those that you don't really know are coming, right? It's just those that land up to you because your content's good and people genuinely and editorially want to link out to you. But Definitely. Um, uh, but I, I don't think you have to necessarily wait for that to happen. It's kind of a, a mistake I see a lot of people make is that they, they just publish great content and they hope the links roll in. Yeah. And in my, in my experience, the best links I get are from direct outreach. And I'll be happy to talk about how to do that. But of course... I do get a lot of natural links and they're the best links you can get, right? Because they're super editorial and uh, you don't have to do any extra work to get them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk about that a little bit because rightly said, I mean, you can just wait and hope and um, perhaps cross your fingers that people are going to start linking to you or you can go out and find them. Now, you've published a post called the 17 untapped backlink sources. I'd love to get your insights on that and perhaps ask you to do a condensed version and perhaps name your top three untapped link sources because I think that would make pretty good listening. Sure. So in that post, one of the best is uh, the aforementioned resource page. So in that post, I talk about just resource pages that are on .edu sites. So .edu sites are in the States university sites, right? Yep. Um, they're very hard links to get. Some people in SEO feel that they have some special ranking power in Google if you can get a link from them. I don't personally believe that. But the point is that without exception, they're all very powerful, highly trusted domains. I mean, we're talking about household names like Harvard, Yale, Princeton. These are institutions that you've heard of and that are high, in the highly trusted sites. But it's really hard to get a link from them, um, harder than your average site. But one of the easiest ways to sort of get your foot in the door and actually get a link is the fact that a lot of them have resource pages, which are just links to great resources. They have links uh, they have resource pages about nutrition, about email marketing. They have, even have resource pages about SEO. So what you want to do is find those resource pages on EDU sites or on other sites and uh, get your link on them. And the, the easiest way is really just to create something that would make, be a good fit for that page and then email that person and let them know. Um, you can easily find resource pages. And another nice thing about them is that they're super easy to find in Google. You just have to put something like, in URL colon, so it's in URL colon um, resources plus your keyword. So you could put plus nutrition, uh, plus gardening, plus cooking, and see what comes up. And if you want to specify edu sites, you can put site colon dot edu, and we can have these search things in, in the show notes because they're a bit hard to sound out. I just found out. <laughs> Man, <laughs> you did a great never, job. Never done that before. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, they're they're super easy to find if you have maybe two or three search strings, you'll find more than you even know what to do with. And then it's just a matter of grinding out, finding the person that runs that section of the site and particularly that page and emailing them with a non-pushy pitch, basically saying, hey, I found your list of resources, uh, really great. I have something that I just published about gardening. Um, it might make a good fit. Either way, I keep the great work and you'll find that you'll get about a 10% conversion rate if, um, 
you find the right person and have a great piece of content. It's hard to come up with like a specific conversion rate. A lot of people are like, well, if I email hundred people, how many people will link? It's really hard to say because it depends on how great your content is, right? If you have something that's the meaning of life, it's a lot easier to get links than if you have like a 500 word article that's like five tips for gardening. It's going to be a lot harder. Um, you can still get some links just because it's somewhat a numbers game. The more people you email about your content and give them a heads up, the more links you get. Yeah. So have you got any tips for crafting an effective email that may get the attention of someone that's managing a resource page? Uh, definitely. So the first thing is to find the right person. That That's something a lot of people skip over. And what they'll do is, for example, with an EDU site in particular or any large institution site, you know, not a blog run by one guy, you'll need to find whoever's in charge of that particular section. Because if you email the general email or the general contact form, your email is going to end up in a black hole, right? It's probably not going to be forwarded to the right person because that person is going to, you know, they don't want to. Um, it doesn't seem like a, a very urgent email to send to someone. So your first job is to find out who curates that, that area. A lot of times you find clues on the page. They'll have an email address, they'll have a name, or if you look at, this, at the category in the URL. So for example, if the category was like, you know, say this URL is like traffic jam forward slash um, webinars forward slash resources, and you had a list of webinar resources, what we want to do is just look at traffic jam forward slash webinars and then see who runs that section. A lot of times you'll they'll have a person that will be in charge specifically for that section. So that's the first thing. And once you've found it, it's really not rocket science. I don't, a lot of people overthink email outreach. I really, what I put in the subject line is something like a quick question about your resource page. And then I just put their name and the pitch that I basically outlined. I find your resource page. It's really great. I have something that might be a good fit. Here's a link, you know, it might make a good addition to the page. If not, that's cool. Yeah, that's basically all you need to do. Fantastic, cool. Well, that I think is a super easy and actionable thing that uh, our listeners can go out and do. That's number one. What's number two on the list? Number two would be broken link building, which is kind of like that strategy souped up a little bit. So if you're if you're serious about link building and you want to get more links from your emails, this is a strategy that you absolutely need to do. So broken link building is basically the same approach. So you look for these resource pages and what you do instead of just begging for a link, which I just told you works, it can work. What you do is you look for broken links on that page. So what you're doing is when you find a broken link, you reach out to that person. And instead of just asking for something straight up, you're kind of getting your foot in the door with uh, helping them saying, yeah. Hey, I found some broken links on the page. Um, and especially if your link is a replacement, a nice replacement for that broken link, then it's so easy to get links. It's not even funny. So if there was a broken link that used to link to an article about gardening and you have an article about gardening, that's really similar and you email that person, it's really a no brainer for them to replace your broken link. So in a sense, you're doing them a little bit of a favor by identifying broken links on their page. And then you have a great resource that's a great fit. And the conversion rate is double or triple that of straight up link building, uh, link begging. And it doesn't really take a lot of extra work. Um, you can use a great extension for Chrome called Check My Links. And when you click a little button on your, on your Chrome browser, it finds broken links in like 10 seconds. Super easy. Nice, nice. And I guess the process there is then just going out and finding appropriate websites in your niche or market and then hitting send and, and um, getting in contact with those people responsible, right? Exactly. 
Simple. Love it. Okay, so number three. This is a top three list. Okay, so number three is a little bit more involved. So you're not just you can't just find pages and email people. It's infographics. For me, infographics are one of the most like untapped content marketing strategies, period. Link building, SEO, content. Um, the problem with infographics is that um, they've become so commonplace and they've become so saturated. Uh, I, I, a guest on your show, Neil Patel, um, told me that when he started Kissmetrics, one of the, the reasons that they did so well was that they published a lot of infographics. They, would do a, they did a weekly infographic for a year. And this is before infographics were really big. And regardless of whether the infographic was great or good or mediocre, they would still get a ton of traffic and links from it. And today, it doesn't really work like that. There's just so many infographics out there. That being said, the right infographic um, can still do really well, especially when it comes to link building. So what I like to do is look at a site called Visually. So it's visual.ly. And that's basically a community of infographic designers. And you can find infographics that people have submitted there. And what you want to do is find one in your space that's already done well. So you can you can sort them by views, you can sort them by likes, you can sort them by comments, and you can see which ones have done well. Take bits and pieces that you like and create sort of a Frankenstein infographic of all the things that you found that you liked, uh, minus the things you didn't like, and create an awesome infographic. And from that point, it's a matter of doing the outreach part. And the outreach for infographics is very different than with resource page link building or broken link building, which we just went over. With infographics, what you want to do is basically find people that publish content about your topic. So again, if you had your nice gardening infographic, it was ready to go, you'd want to email people that um, wrote about gardening and say, hey, you write about gardening. And what you want to do is maybe find more of a sub-niche. So if you had an infographic about growing tomatoes, you want to find people that write about growing tomatoes quite often. Email those people, say, hey, you write about growing tomatoes. I just published an infographic about growing tomatoes. Um, yeah, here you go. And that's all you really want to do. I don't, at that point, I never ask for anything. Sometimes I don't even send them a link. I just say, do you want to see the infographic? And when they reply and say yes, I say, here you go. And then I say, if you ever want to republish this on your site, I'll be happy to write a unique introduction for you. And that really greases the wheels because, you know, if someone's going to publish an infographic from someone else on their site, it's nice because they don't have to write content that day. But the bad thing is they kind of do have to write content, right? Because you have to write at least the introduction. You can't just slap an infographic on a blog post and call it a day. So when you write the intro for them, you're really saying, hey, not only do you get a nice infographic to share with the audience, I'll write a unique introduction just for you. And if you do that enough, you can get tons of great links using that strategy. And this is the concept that you call guestographics, is that right? Exactly. Love it, love it. I was gonna ask you about that. We've kind of had these infographic terms pop up on Traffic Jam over the weeks. Neil's was the gifographics, which are kind of getting popular, and now we've got guestographics. Um, so <laughs> we're really mixing this right. thing up with infographics. Well, that's the thing, man. Like I said, there's so many now. You've you got to innovate, really right? Yeah, you kind of have to. Now, one of the most successful posts on your site in terms of referring domains, that's the number of other websites linking to you, was your post that you did on Google ranking factors. What was it about that post specifically that garnered so much attention and links to your site? Well, I think one of them was the fact that it's the most comprehensive resource on that topic online. So, which is very hard to say, right? This is, it's very hard to be like, that is bar none, 
the most comprehensive resource about that topic. Um, I think once you have that in hand, the job of outreach and link building is a lot easier. So I would say that's the number one thing. The number two thing is I did a ton of outreach. I did a lot of broken link building, resource page link building uh, to get the word out. Because when I published that, um, I think the next that the week after I published it, I had eight tweets, two comments, and like three Facebook likes. So even though it was a really great piece of content, just publishing it wasn't nearly enough. Yeah, I want to ask you a little bit about your content style. I mean, if I was to compare you to say a Seth Godin, it'd be a little bit like comparing kind of chalk and cheese. Like he's got this style that's very short and precise, but your content's typically, you know, five pages long and very detailed in style. What is it about your content style that's kind of brought it about to being what it is? I'm sure you're going to tell me it's by design, right? Well, it is It is by design. Uh, there's been a lot of research about what content tends to get shared most often. So Jonah Berger, who is a researcher and author, he did a study on what content made the New York Times bestseller list most often. And he looked at content that made that list versus content that didn't. And he tried to find out what that content had that the you know, not really shared content didn't tend to have. And he found a ton of different things. But one of the most important was content length. So the longer the content was, the more likely it was to make that New York Times most emailed list. Um, another study by these guys called SERP IQ, they looked at what content tended to rank on the first page of Google. And they found the average first page result for um, a piece of content was at least 2,000 words to make Google's first page. And as you get to the top, like the top three, it's, it gets higher. It's more like 2,500 words. Um, and then more recently, BuzzSumo and OKDork did a study where they looked at um, content length and social shares, and they found that content that was more than 2,000 words or 3,000 words got shared significantly more often than shorter stuff. So for me and from my personal experience, I found that longer content crushes shorter content every single time. And a lot of people try to go the Seth Godin route. I love Seth Godin. Um, he's a smart guy. But if you try to recreate his strategy today in 2014, it's not going to work. Yeah. He has a huge head start. He was blogging in 2006. You're not. All right. The world is totally different than when he started. You could, Back then, if you updated your blog every day, that was enough to be a unique selling proposition. Um, now, if you tried to do that same strategy today, it wouldn't work. I prefer to publish much less often. And when I do publish, publish something that's really long and in-depth. Um, it's worked for me and the data really doesn't lie on that topic. Yeah, well, it's interesting because it's kind of counterintuitive, right? I mean, first of all, I could see how it would work for search having long form content because the content's more detailed. It would give a more relevant and in-depth search result. But in terms of sort of share worthy content, you might think that kind of shorter, more consumable content might get consumed more and therefore get shared more. But um, that's clearly not the case. Yeah, you would. And, and I think part of the reason, there's two reasons for that. One is that there was another study that found that basically people don't read stuff that they share. So people, when they share something on social media, nine times out of 10, they haven't even read the thing. And I know I'm guilty of that sometimes, I'm sure. Well, I don't want to point fingers, but I am. I'm, <laughs> gonna say, I'm sure you are, James, but I don't want to speak to you. Know you. Um, I wasn't always, but I've started using Buffer app quite a lot more and it makes some mm -hmm. really nice suggestions. I'll scan the post if it looks kind of cool, I'll often share it, but you didn't hear exactly. that here. <laughs> All right, <laughs> but, but you know what I'm saying, right? I mean, most people, I, I wouldn't say they haven't looked at it, but they haven't read it. And yeah. one of the other factors that Jonah Berger looked at 
for what content tended to, to go viral and get shared on this New York Times most email list was a sense of awe. So if content had a sense of awe, it was much more likely to get shared. So when you have a long, you know, 3,000 word post that has a ton of details, screenshots or images and videos, it, it instills that sense of awe that it compels someone to share it. Um, and I think it's one of the main reasons that it gets shared most often. Yeah, well, it's perhaps something we should link to in the resource um, section of this post because Jonah Berger's stuff on contagious nothing um how stuff really catches on and, and, and captures fire is really really interesting especially for us content creators so uh, i'll make sure that's included there now i want to ask you about a little case study you had because in the age of search where it's very much kind of this long-term game now they're not really any short-term wins you were pretty much able to do the remarkable right you got a 110 percent increase in traffic in about 14 days um, using a technique i believe you since coined as the skyscraper technique tell us a little bit about that sure so the skyscraper technique is basically a strategy of content marketing and seo for now so it's really really what you said jame is for it does work in the short term, but it's really a long-term play. So basically, there's three steps. The first step is you find content that's already done well in your space, in your niche. So in my case, the Google Ranking Factors post that you mentioned earlier, I had found a few other posts about Google's Ranking Factors that weren't really thorough, and they're a bit out of date, and they had still done really well. So Google, a couple of years ago, came out and said they have 200 Ranking Factors. So all these people tried to come up with all 200, figure out what they were. Now, no one even got close. I think the closest guy was like 140 something. And the, the page that he listed was very ugly, it was out of date, um, but it had tons of referring domains and even a lot of social shares, even though it came out sort of before the age of Twitter and stuff, just because people find it now and it's, it was really helpful. Um, the next thing you wanna do is improve on that content. So in my case, that piece of content didn't have all 200, so it was no brainer to list all 200. Now, of course, they're not official. A lot of them are probably totally irrelevant and way off base, but I tried to find a resource for, for at least most of them. Um, if not all of them have some basis, not things that I totally made up. Um, and that was basically saying, well, we have all 200 here and that alone will, will help it stand out. But I also updated a lot. I made it more thorough. The other ones are just like lists of the ranking factors. I described each one. I added images, basically trying to make something a lot better. And that's why it's called the skyscraper technique because they had the tallest skyscraper and you're creating something that's taller and stands out. And then the third step is where I reach out to people that link to the older content and give them a heads up about mine. And a lot of times it's similar to broken link building instead of the, the links, not really broken, right? In this case, it's just linking to something outdated, but the idea is you're just saying, Hey, you link to this resource. I have something that's either more up to date, um, more thorough, you know, you might want to consider adding my link as well. And I'm not really in, in 0% of the cases has anyone removed the link to the, to the older piece of content, but a lot of times I've added mine. Yeah. So there's nothing malicious going on. You're not really like stealing their links. Um, I never asked for them to do that. I don't want them to do that, but they add your link to the page as well. It's also a no brainer. The linking is something inferior. You have something better. You know, it's a no-brainer. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's positioning again, isn't it? It's like the it's like the broken link approach. You're helping them and and offering up something that potentially is more valuable to their readers, which they shouldn't turn a blind eye to. Right. 
So I'm guessing this whole outreach thing is pretty important, but you don't just do post outreach. You do something called pre outreach, which you mentioned to me earlier. Tell me a little bit about how that works um, and how you go about connecting with influencers before your content's posted. Sure. So this is something I've been experimenting with recently, because what I would do is after I publish a post to sort of get a buzz before I do any link building is I would email people after it came out just to give them a heads up. And I actually learned this from, again, Neil, who's obviously influenced a lot of people because we talk about him all the time. And he, I remember he mentioned on a podcast that when he published his advanced guide to SEO, after he published it, he emailed 200 people about it. And he said that made a huge difference in terms of the shares and the activity around that piece of content. And it got me thinking, I mean, if Neil, who has like a hundred something thousand Twitter followers, his email list is massive, he gets, you know, absurd amount, a certain amount of traffic. If he's going to do email outreach and that helped him, you know, imagine how it could help me, someone who has less of all that stuff. So I decided to try it out and it worked really well. And, but it got me thinking that, you know, people want sort of an insider scoop. Um, they want to know when something's going to happen beforehand. So I started experimenting with emailing people before it came out. So about a week before the post comes out, I email a bunch of people and basically say, you know, you shared, I'll just break it down step by step. It's a lot easier. So the first step is I use this tool called BuzzSumo. I don't know if you know about this, James. I don't know. So um... it's awesome. It's uh, called BuzzSumo. And basically what it is, is a way to find content that's been shared a lot. So you go into BuzzSumo and you put in a keyword like podcasting and it'll show you over whatever time period you choose content about podcasting that's been shared a lot on Twitter, Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, and Google Plus and Pinterest. And you can sort by each social network or total amount of shares. So what I do is I find content about whatever my post is about that's done well over the last couple of weeks. And another cool feature about that is you can see who shared it on Twitter. So you click view shares in BuzzSumo and it shows you all the people that just shared it on Twitter. So what I do is I download that list and then I hire a, a freelancer to find the email addresses of all those people. And then I email them saying, hey, basically you uh, tweeted out this piece of content about podcasting last week. I have another piece of content about podcasting coming out in a couple of days. Do you want to check it out? And for all the people that say yes, I email it to them. It's as simple as that. It's a, it's a total numbers game. I usually email about 200 people. And from that, I get maybe 40 um, tweets. Nice. Very nice. Well, this is kind of in line with the Jonah Berger stuff as well, right? It's getting the, getting those people the inside scoop, um, which instantaneously makes them more, you know, pre-inclined to share it because they feel like they're, you know, they're, they're delivering value and being ahead of the curve on this stuff. So, um, I can see how that works extremely well. I'm going to check out that the, the, uh, the app's called what? Buzz. Buzz Sumo. Perfect. Well, that'll be in the show notes for sure. Now, we've talked a lot about great content and distribution. What other activities that we could be doing in SEO would you say are high yield activities that you suggest our listeners invest in? I would invest more in uh, keyword research. So back when I used to do client work with SEO, um, there's this frustrating thing that basically everyone who does client work can understand. You take on a new client and he basically says, I have five keywords I want to rank for. Here they are. Go, to, go do it. And a lot of times those keywords are just not good fits for that guy's business or that woman's business. It's just, they're keywords that that, that person just came up with. 
Um, they, they not only are they usually like insanely competitive, but they won't even bring in customers because they're so broad in general. So, for example, you know, if you were selling uh, shoes online, someone searching for you know red heels is going to convert a lot better for you than someone searching for shoes, right? So yeah. shoes make it a lot more searches. It's also insane, much more competitive, but just the, that specificity of the keyword is going to forget about competitiveness. That person's going to convert. That person's much more likely to become a customer. It's like insurance. You sold life insurance. Someone searching for like life insurance for a 65 year old is going to convert a lot better than someone searching for life insurance. That could be a student doing a term paper, right? Um, could be never become your customer. So for me, the number one high value thing is keyword research. For me, that's more important than link building, uh, on-page SEO, anything else you can do, because that's sort of the compass that guides the rest of your SEO. If you don't have keywords, you don't know where you're going, you don't know if you're making progress, and you don't even know what to optimize around. So even if you, you, know, if you don't have a keyword in mind, you're just kind of writing content and hoping that people search for whatever it is you put out, as opposed to creating content around what people already search for which is a much smarter strategy. Yeah, so where does keyword research fit in your sort of content development program? Does it come pre-content idea or do you come up with, you know, a suitable piece of content and then see what keyword terms are going to be relevant for that particular piece of content? Uh, I go both directions. So usually I go with the, I let the keyword sort of guide my thinking. So that's that's the strategy that I recommend most people do because you don't have to really wonder whether or not there's going to be demand for what you're writing if you have keywords in front of you that have a lot of search volume. That's the beautiful thing about keyword research is that even if there wasn't such thing as SEO, I'd still use it because it gives you objective data about what people are searching for online, not just people, your customers are searching for online. So there's really no reason not to do keyword research, even if you don't care about SEO. Just if you look at keywords, you can see how many people search for the keywords, the trend, whether it's becoming more popular or less popular over time. It's awesome data that you can't get anywhere else. It's really market research. Yeah. Um, well, it guides conversions as well, right? I mean, if you understand the psychology and the language patterns of your prospects, you can you know, adapt your content style to fit the wording that they're using themselves. Yeah, absolutely. So it's another, that's, that's a good point. So that doesn't have anything to do with SEO but that's where keyword research can help. That's one of the reasons I'm saying it's such a high value thing, not just for SEO. Um, but, but sometimes I'll get a content idea or a case study will come up and then I have to go the other way, right? So when I have the case study in hand, I wanna, then I look at the keywords and see, okay, if someone's looking for some information on this topic or a case study, what keywords would they use in Google? And that's where I go in the other direction. So it can, it can go both ways. I don't think one is right or wrong. It kind of depends. If you have no ideas, then you want to start with keywords. But if you already have a list of stuff, then you can kind of form it around the keywords that are already out there. Yeah. Well, let's finish up with a non-SEO related question because I've seen you doing something that's um, fairly innovative that I too have been getting good results with and that's the content upgrade. I think you've been getting pretty good conversions with it right recently. Tell us about that. Amazing. So this strategy alone has basically tripled the conversions on my site. Um, and for months, I struggled. I mean, I have a guy who's a part-time uh, guy working for me. All he does is split testing. And we've had some tiny improvements, but nothing compared to the content upgrade. Uh, and I noticed you're using it, and you're using it the exact same way I use it on Backlinko. 
And basically what you do is for every piece of content that you publish, whether it's a podcast interview or a blog post, you create a resource specific to that post. So what I used to do was at the end of a post, it'd be like, did you like that content? Then sign up for my newsletter. And needless to say, it's not really a compelling offer. You know, no one's like wakes up in the morning saying, oh, I can't wait to like sign up for someone's newsletter. No one really cares about your newsletter um, and no one cared about mine. So I noticed some people doing this and I decided to give it a try. And it was just an absolutely astronomical increase in conversions when I did. And it didn't take that much time. I would say it takes an extra like 20 minutes to a half hour to set up this, this post specific resource and then put it on the site. But I'm sure you've seen, James, the conversion difference is in, insane. Yeah, uh, absolutely astronomical, completely different. Um, we had Tim Page on as well from Lead Pages um, a few episodes ago, and he was sharing the stats across their site. And I think they had somewhere near a, a threefold increase in terms of opt-ins per day when they created these post-specific opt-in bribes. So um, the difference is astronomical. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. And I actually use Lead Pages to use for the content upgrade. And that's what I recommend because it's, it's, it works really well together. It's like peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> Perfect. Well, let's leave things on peanut butter and jelly um, and just share with our listeners where they can go to find out a little bit more about you, Brian. I guess Backlinko would be one place. Where else should we send people off to? Well, that's definitely the best place to go and then sign up for the newsletter, which is good. It's just no one was signing up for it without the content upgraded. Um, <laughs> the other place to, to check out is uh, Twitter, which is at Backlinko. Perfect. Well, I found you as a result of a referral from Neil and then signed up to your uh, newsletter. And I've got to say it's valuable stuff. So I'm going to suggest you, the listener, head on over to backlinko.com. Why don't you try opting in via a content upgrade and then uh, get hold of Brian's newsletter. I'm sure it'll be well worth your time. So thank you for your time today, Brian. It's been invaluable and uh, perhaps we can do it all again sometime in the future. Sounds good, James. Thanks for having me. So there you go. That was Brian Dean from backlinko.com. Now to help you get the most out of the broken backlink and guestographic outreach strategies mentioned by Brian on today's show, I've put together for you a swipe file containing instructions and the exact email copy used by Brian in his own outreach program. Plus, as a very special extra bonus, I'm also including the email copy that I've used to land regular guest post contributions with the likes of Golf Business Magazine and Entrepreneur Middle East. Now, to download these special bonuses, plus the MP3 full transcript and episode artwork for today's show, go to trafficjamcast.com forward slash 45. That's trafficjamcast.com dot com forward slash 45, where you can also join the discussion on today's episode. So thank you for listening into the show. I'll be back again with another episode real soon. Be sure not to miss out on any of the future updates by subscribing via iTunes and Stitcher Radio, which you can do by going to trafficjamcast.com forward slash iTunes and trafficjamcast.com forward slash Stitcher. Remember to also head on over to the main website, veravo.com for more traffic tips and training and to learn how I can help you get more leads and sales with a range of done for you traffic services. Now we end this week's show with a traffic jam chosen by our guest today, Brian Dean, and he's gone for the track titled Welcome to the Jungle and it's by Guns and Roses. See you soon.
You've been listening to the Traffic Jam Podcast with James Reynolds. To know more about this program and to subscribe for future episodes, check out the website, trafficjamcast.com.